Well, I'd like to thank the minister and the elders for the kind invitation to come and worship with you and to preach the gospel to you uh, this morning. The people of God, turn to the gospel as it's given by John, chapter 14, John 14 and verse 1. And we'll read the first 27 verses of this chapter and then hear God's word preached. John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works." Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my Father. Whatever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, 
He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judith, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father, Father's which sent me. These things I have spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So reads the living a word of our God, infallible, eternal, and to his name be the praise and the glory uh, that we have such a word to us. Now we turn our attention uh, to uh, this chapter, and I want to uh, bring the focus upon a couple of verses that summarize some of the main teaching in this chapter. In verse 16, Christ tells his apostles that he will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter or helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. In verse 21, Christ tells them midway through the verse, that he who loves Christ will be loved by the Father, and he will love him and manifest himself to him. And then in verse 23, Christ's words read, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him or dwell with him. I want to look at this chapter in both uh, services um, today. Uh, The chapter opens, you know the chapter well. I'm assuming uh, most of you, if not all of you, know the chapter well. Uh, Opens with a call to not be troubled. And I want to preach on the verses I just read to you in light of Christ's focus there, that we are not to be troubled. And he gives immense reasons that they do not fully understand at the time why they ought not to be troubled. And these are reasons that massively apply to us. They're not side things or um, things that we can study infrequently, but basic things, important things about the way our soul views God, the way our souls interact with God, and the way we can be in the midst of trouble, for it will come, it will be here, that we can live and thrive in Christ in the midst of such trouble. And their trouble here 
was not small. They had great reasons at this time to be troubled. There are three very important things that Christ tells them, if not for the first times, uh, at least one of them, he had told them frequently. But these things impact them in the room. And the three things are, first of all, that he was going away. Now, he had indicated this to them. Uh, He had intimated this before. And like you and me, when the Lord speaks, and even when we see it in Scripture, that doesn't mean we have heard it or that we understand it the way it ought to be understood. The apostles were affected by the messianic theology of the day. And that comes out in John's Gospel. The leaders question Christ and question the disciples. And when they question Christ, they say, is it not true that the Christ ought to remain forever? And if you'd been reformed in that day, if you'd been a conservative Pharisee who cared about holiness and doctrine and worship, and you'd lived at that time, what you would have been taught in church is that the Christ comes physically. He comes like Moses or David, uh, and he, he reigns physically, and he remains forever. He doesn't leave. He comes to stay. Now, they should have known he would leave. Moses appeared to the Israelites in Egypt to redeem them and was rejected by them, and then he disappeared to the wilderness for 40 years. And so we see that messianic theme in David's life and others' life too. And even rabbis at the time wrote about that. Long before the the Pharisees, they knew that the Messiah would come in power, but then he would be taken away. That he would be a glorious king, but also a suffering king. And as you know, at this time, that second half of that had been lost. So when Jesus says to them in verse 33, I think it's 33 of chapter 13, It's not verse 33. 36. No, it is is verse 33. Chapter 13, verse 33. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say unto you. Verse 36 of chapter 13. Peter is struck by this. He speaks first. This is... This is greatly troubling to Peter. This unravels his soul. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. He certainly can't go with him in that way to the garden or Gabbatha. He can't go with him to the cross. He can't go with him into the grave. And he certainly at this time cannot go with him into the presence of the Father to justify and save and appear before the Father to accomplish and finish redemption by his blood, by his righteousness, his active, his passive obedience. Peter was a natural lover of Christ. He's following him. His natural passions dominated his faith at this point. He even says, I will follow you anywhere, but he has no idea he cannot follow him there. And Jesus says to him, I will be apart from you, Peter. We are joined But I am different than you. I have this to do and you can't just keep following me that way. I am going away. I am going away. He tells them he's leaving. The other thing he tells them 
which just compounds uh, the, the unraveling of their souls before him is that Peter himself will deny him. He declares that it is so, that before all this is said and done, as you know, Peter will deny him three times. You will deny that you ever knew me, the Lord says to him. The other disciples look. The rock, the one who Christ turned to and said, get behind me, Satan. But yet the rock or the stone, the one who would lead the apostles, the the one who was given a, a primacy among the apostles, the one who was the natural leader at this point, the one who said they will all stumble, fall, and leave, but not me, Christ looks at him in front of his brethren and said, you will deny me worst of all, and all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Troubling, very troubling. The Lord said of of me or your pastor, when you feel strength and the Lord is at work in the church, and the Lord said to us, No, he will deny me three times with oaths and curses. How troubling it would be. There is natural strength that the apostles trust in, in themselves and in Peter. But the Lord knows what will happen and tells them. And then he seals it. One of you will betray me. These are the three things that go on in this room around that Lord's Supper. Uh, Among all these words of love and spirit and father and son, among words of glory, among words of accomplishment, tender words, yet penetrating these words, the Lord gives the reality of the spiritual life and the spiritual battle. I am going away. Peter, Simon, you will deny me. You will all stumble because of me, and one of you will betray me. I wonder if that night Peter thought he was the one who would betray him. At least once he denied him and saw the look of his Lord and went out and wept. I wonder if he thought he was the fulfillment of that word, that he had betrayed the Lord. How awful when the Lord says that it would be better for someone had he not been born than he would betray his master. This is trouble, but this is our Christ and he speaks great promises, yet he speaks the truth of this trouble. He tells us the truth about the church, the truth about the dangers that may befall you and me. He tells us of the difficulty of prayer. He tells us uh, what it is when judgment comes upon a land or as chastisement comes upon any church or set of churches in the Western world right now. These are all causes that, things that may cause us trouble I don't know what you brought in here this morning. You may be brought trouble with you. Trouble in your prayers or trouble in your faith. Doubts about whether the Lord listens to you. Whether you are worth listening to. Whether he hears your praise. Whether your faith is real. Or why did this happen? And why didn't that happen? Or why have I lost this Is this the blessed life that Christ gives me? Or why was that sin in my life? Or why do I have that past? Or why um, am I not at one with my brother or sister? There is trouble 
in this earth, in our churches, in our hearts, in our church courts, in a greatly declining and apostatizing culture. Man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward, God says to Job. Trouble. Even Christ is not exempt from trouble. For only a couple of hours after this, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? I am exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, he says in the garden. Yes. And what's the way to deal with trouble? I often have trouble in my own soul. What's the way to deal with trouble? Is it to teach yourself a view of God that he only brings always what's good and easy? Or that your spiritual life will always work the way it ought to work? Is it to have a a view of God that you move away from the difficult things that he says in his word? Or the difficult things he may bring into your providence? And to blind yourself from it? And to recast God in only a positive way or an easy way where you only ever feel comfort and ease? Is that the way to deal with the trouble It's not. It's to hear Christ that in the midst of any trouble, he exhorts us not to deny the trouble is real, not to sense the trouble or even have it sting you, but that it not overcome you, that you let not, the opening of the chapter, let not your heart be troubled. He means overwhelmingly troubled. Troubled to the point that it makes the faith defective. He's not saying that the Christian will never feel troubled about the state of his or her own soul or your family or the church, that you'll never be concerned or burdened. We carry burdens. But he's talking about a level of trouble here that dismantles faith or that trips us, that makes us doubt God. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. And I want to open this now and say to you that he gives two great things in this passage that soar above any of these troubles. And none of this is false hope. This isn't a reality-denying hope that we simply think of heaven so that we blind ourselves to our usefulness in this world. These, these aren't simply easy things. These are robust, concrete, faith-fixing things in which faith can rise above the trouble. We sang Psalm 46. The nations are in disarray and so on. The mountains may be moved. They may quake and the whole earth shake. It's real, but God's city is there surrounded, built well, with a river that flows and makes glad the city of the Lord. It's not denying the trouble. It is rising in the midst of it by faith and being able to interact with the trouble by faith. And these two things that he tells them are that God will come to dwell with them 
And if that weren't enough, that then they would go to dwell with God. We're so earthly focused. Sometimes heaven is an afterthought. In the Bible, heaven is one of the main things. It is the, it is a, and I include the new heavens and earth here. It is a, it is the end point of all of God's saving work. It is a, it is the permanent place. This fallen condition of this fallen world is a temporary, transient thing. God will come to dwell with you. And you will go to dwell with God. And that matters to them. Because he's saying, I am going away. Who will we have? They say to him. How will we survive and grow? And bring forth the kingdom with you not physically present. And they don't understand the theology of all that Christ is doing. And he tells them, ah, the Spirit will come. He says that when the Spirit comes, he comes. He says, I will come to you. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Christ is saying, he comes, but in him, I come. I am not leaving you orphans. I am not far from you in this trouble. And he says the same to us this morning. He isn't far from us. And Satan is very interested in you and me and our view of how near God is to us. He doesn't want us to know that the Lord dwells with us and that he is available to us. He doesn't want us to know that because we must look unto Jesus by faith, that that's not a weakened state where Christ is somehow objectively only far away. Yes, Christ may be physically far away. But Christ said it is better if I go away because the comforter will come. It's better because he goes to the Father. Why? Because the Spirit comes in fullness in a way that the apostles could not have imagined in the era they lived in up until that point. And not only that, but then that will ultimately lead to them being with God, not being on the earth where the Christ remains forever, where Jesus reigns in an earthly Jerusalem, but that we go to heaven, the city of God, and that one day that city comes down to be consummated on a new heaven and earth. One place known as heaven that far exceeds this place. Now these are no small hopes. I will be with you every day in this place and then you will come to me in my place. These are great blessings. Satan is interested in them both. And he will come to you in the midst of a great judgment in the land, in the midst of good theology that we have, which is that God does hide his face from his church. He does pour out his wrath on nations. He isn't easy. There are times you may seek him, and when you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear. There are times he waits in a way that we view as too long, and it's excruciating, and he tests us and stretches us to a point that we think is beyond our current capacity. These things are real. Expect it if you're a young believer. He may shield you from these things, 
but you will have seasons of trouble where you are crying out in faith and there is no immediate voice of assurance to you. Now, we believe these things. We're not like the churches that say, we're so glad God's here, no matter what we do. And God only blesses us, and he doesn't have a hard word ever to say against us. And no matter if we prepare for worship, or how we live, or how we approach family worship, or how you approach your personal prayer life, you just turn to the right And you say, our Father in heaven, and there he is. And it's as easy as that. We don't believe that. We believe God does hide his face at times. But Satan is interested in that truth. Because the issue for me and you in being orthodox in that way, in knowing that side of our Lord, is that Satan can come in and say, God is far from you. And you you are not impressive enough for him to listen to. You are no Whitfield, you are no, you are no Edwards, you are no godly man or woman. Why will, why will he come down in answer to your prayer? Why will he provide for you? Why will he do these things? Why would God want to be near you when you're so poor and weak? Well, this passage answers that. God dwells with us and we one day will dwell with God. We'll deal with us dwelling with God in the afternoon service. How does God dwell with us according to Jesus' words here? He dwells with us in union. He dwells with us in communion. He dwells with us in illumination. And he dwells with us in sanctification. I don't know if I'll get through all of these, but we'll see how we progress. He dwells with us in union. The Lord tells them in our chapter in verse 16. I will pray the Father. Could I ask someone to bring a glass of water up here? I didn't, I finished my bottle. Thank you. In verse 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. The spirit comes, Jesus says. Now, it's interesting what he says at the end of verse 17. He dwells with you and will be in you. The Lord is making a distinction. It would take some time probably to go into exactly what that distinction is, but it is a distinction that he says to them at that time, he is with you but shall be in you. There is a difference from old covenant into new covenant. There is a difference of the pervasiveness, the the outpouring and the fullness of the operation of the Holy Spirit. We know what took place at Pentecost. He has poured out his influence, his power, his presence is poured out in a very dramatic way. Thank you. But he comes. But the point here is what when Jesus says that the Spirit comes, we're speaking about God coming. Now, we can believe in God. The disciples believed in God. They probably believed God was with them. God had been with Israel and so on. But this is very dramatic. He's telling them that God comes to live in a distinct way in them. You can't go any further than that, any deeper into a person than that. It's not that God visits 
It's not that he's near, that he makes the believer his dwelling place. Your pastor mentioned uh, that recently you'd looked at Zion being the dwelling place of God. So it is. It is the dwelling place of God because the believer is the dwelling place of God. And when you have a group of believers worshipping God in spirit and in truth, their God is. He comes in a union. He comes to dwell. And that's an awesome thing. The third person of the Trinity comes in a distinct way. God of very God himself. It's too frequent for us to think of God and Christ and the Spirit. As though he is the influence of God. As though he is the power or the force of God. He is God. He is equally Jehovah. Coming to dwell in a sinful heart. He will be in you, Christ says. And he says that he will abide with you forever. Verse 16. This is a a settling down in your soul. This is an inhabitation, an indwelling that isn't conditional from that point on as to what percentage of God's law you have fulfilled reasonably well. It's not even in an ultimate sense dependent on your own prayers and these things and even your own faith. We know there's another time to speak about that we can make shipwreck of the faith or taste of the powers of the age of to come and the heavenly gift and the, and then trample the Son of God underfoot his blood and so on. There's a time to give that warning. That's the other side of the coin. But let it be said that when God comes to dwell in your heart, that isn't a decade contract or covenant. It's not a covenant to the end of your life or as long as you and your family are, are, are perfectly faithful. It goes well beyond that. It is thousands of years. It is hundreds of thousands of years. It is forever, Jesus says, that the Holy One, that the Glorious One, that the Divine One, that He comes to be with you. And... When he does that, a union is struck. He unites you to Jesus. And that's Jesus' point here when he tells them that uh, they will not be orphans because he goes away. Because when the Spirit comes, uh, that has a link to Jesus himself. He unites you to Christ. And that is not simply a paragraph for a theology book. It is not just a theological category. It's a spiritual reality. It is Jesus, the Christ, who has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit without measure. He he is anointed. He was Meshacht. He is Messiah. He, He was Christed. He is called Christ because 
of the fullness of the Holy Spirit that he has in his humanity in which he can carry out all that is needed for the salvation of the church. He is filled with the Spirit without measure. And in his glorified state, even now, when someone is brought to him and born again, what happens is that he sends forth the Spirit into that person's heart from himself. And when the Spirit then dwells in you, in your will and faculties and being, in your soul, the very Spirit who is in you is in Christ at the same time. He's in you both. You have the same Holy Spirit. And that is what links you to Christ. His soul and his body. So your soul is united to Jesus in heaven right now if you are born again. You can't see that with the eye, but it's spiritually happening. You are spiritually and mystically united to him. And it is through that that link and union that all his grace and power flows to your soul every time you worship, pray, witness for him, or need illumination on the word. It's all flowing from Jesus Christ in heaven. This is a dwelling that unites you to your Lord and Master in heaven, who is in the Father's house, that peculiar and glorious dwelling of God. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The Spirit is in you, and that then means you are in Christ. The Spirit is in you, and because of that, you are in Christ. And you are one, Jesus says, even as he and his Father are one. These are amazing things. If you think about that in the morning before you go out, it changes the way you approach everything. It changes the way you view prayer. It changes the reading of the word. It changes your view of this life. It changes the way you interact with your brothers and sisters. He unites you to Christ. It's a dwelling of union. But secondly, it's also a dwelling of communion. A union that establishes a communion. It's one thing to know that that spiritual highway exists between your soul and Jesus' soul. But a communion is established. And the communion is established with all three persons of the Trinity. Uh, when the Spirit comes in verse 16 and 17, that the paraclete, the, the comforter, comes to abide with you, the Spirit of truth, he dwells with you, he shall be in you. When he dwells, though he's linking you to Christ in his messianic reign, the thought doesn't end there. When the Spirit dwells in you, He is bringing the presence of the Father and Son in you. It's not that the Spirit is willing to be with you. And he will communicate to God the Father and Christ who want 
the distance from you. No. Where one person of the Trinity is, all three are. His essence is indivisible. He is one glorious, ineffable Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit subsisting three persons, but one God, one Spirit. When Psalm 46 says, The Lord Almighty is with us to strengthen and sustain. And Jacob's God is with us. That's Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, in redemption, the Spirit is sent to you. But when He is then in you and abides there, He is of one Spirit with the Father and the Son. What a thing to be able to say when you pray or you approach God or when you come to the Lord's house. That the Spirit is willing to be with me. That the Father is willing to live with me. That the Son of God is willing to live with me. The Father, Son, and Spirit who live or inhabit eternity. Eternity is, is their most natural habitation. And yet, coming to dwell in you. Why? For communion. That's the whole point, is it not? That's why you and I were made To be in communion with God. That's what a human is for. That's why the world is such a mess. That's why people are angry and miserable. In the downward spiral of all kinds of sins. Of the mind and the body and life. There's a reason that there is so much misery in the world. And it's because each one of these people that you see. They weren't made just to eat food and breathe air. And to know other people. They were made to be in a close communion with God. That's what we're made for. And you know what the fall did to that and and so on. You know the terrible plight of our fallen and sinful state. And the alienation and the enmity it creates between a creature and God. But it's for communion. And that's what Jesus is re-establishing. We... we, um, are made for a communion with God. And and that's what Jesus is promising here by the coming of the Holy Spirit in this upper room as he speaks of an upper room of heaven, the Father's house. Or he speaks of your room, the dwelling of your heart. That we become God's dwelling place. That's why we were made. To know Father, Son, and Spirit in a communion. So we dwell in a communion with each person of the Trinity. This communion is with the Father in verse 23. Jesus answers and says to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. If anyone loveth me, my Father will love him. 
and we will come to dwell with him and make our home with him. When he says at the beginning of the chapter, those famous words, in my father's house are many mansions, many dwellings, many rooms. The only other time in the New Testament that word is used is in verse 23. We will come and make our home, make mansion. So Jesus' great comfort to them, the two great comforts of these two sermons I'm preaching to you, are, yes, you will go because there are many mansions, many rooms, dwellings, places in the Father's house. But before you go to these dwelling places, you yourself become a dwelling place on this earth. Before you leave to go with God, he comes to make his home with you. And that is the Father, the Father, the one who dwells in an approachable light, the one from whom seraphim must shield their faces, the one for whom, for him to dwell unveiled in his glory in the heaven of heavens is an act of humility, for heaven is a created place, a place made for him to unveil his glory to his creation. At the moment, the upper echelon of that is the angels, but the the redeemed ultimately uh, will be above that. But God's revealing himself there to the sinless ones. And yet, Jesus' breathtaking truth to sinners like Peter, James, John, and Nathaniel, and their families, and their churches, and to us, is that the Father comes to dwell with us. Now, Satan wants to involve himself in that discussion. He's very interested in man's communion with God, as you know from Genesis 3. He's very interested in it. And he'll either want to tell us that God isn't that holy because he's willing to dwell with people like us and we shouldn't take our holiness seriously. Or, when we do take our holiness seriously, we then walk with a lack of confidence before the Father. With a a 20% trust that he loves us. And I want to tell you, it is true that Jesus says, if anyone keeps my commandments, if anyone keeps my word, my Father will love him. Jesus is just... Uh, letting us know there uh, that the claim that we know the Father and that he loves us and to experience his love will always have that mark of obedience with it. But we should not take his words here as, if you obey me and if you keep the law, the result will be my Father will love you, because that would deny other parts of Scripture, even from the writings of John himself. Now Jesus says it that way there. He has reasons for saying it that way. But we know that the Father first loves us when we're unlovable. Christ died for the ungodly. That God shows his love towards us, the apostle says. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Satan's very interested in this and I'm caught out by it frequently myself. How can you be realistic about all your failings and your sins and still see the abundance and freeness 
and commitment and steadfastness of God's love. The Father's love that we can say to him, Abba, Father. That we can turn to him and say, Abba, Father. And to know and experience that love. Our love isn't like that. Uh, We try and follow the love we have for the Lord. When we sin against the Lord, repentance is needed. Honesty is needed. Seeking forgiveness is needed. But when it's between a brother and sister in Christ, brother, brother, or on session, or presbytery, or in families, husband and wife, that's acknowledged. But we're both sinful. It's two sinful parties. And, well, you did this, or you said this, and this was an offense to me. This was a sin. And there is a trade-off going on. Because when you see someone else's sin, it's, it's very unusual at that moment for you to usually know just how sinful you are. It's usually, those are the moments where it's a bit easier to focus on, on the failure of the other person. And you're, you're kind of moving towards it with a, a, a right, a, a, an approach of righteousness. Uh, that this person has done this and so on. But there's this kind of, trade-off in love if you do this and uh, my feelings of love for you are conditional and even after the forgiveness is given there's that period of where the trust needs built up and so on because we're fallen creatures we're sinful creatures uh, we're not omniscient will this person do this to me again and there's a garden to, there's a garden to, this is in all our human relationships and satan will want that to be in your relationship with the father And I want you to know it's not. It's not that you don't repent. It's not that confession isn't needed. But he's he's not like us in that way. There are similarities, but he's not like that. And we think we should be like that. Jesus brought people in in, in front of the, the multitudes and so on. And the disciples looked at these people. The Pharisees looked at these people. And they were always extremely condemning of these people. You have to pay what you owe. To be forgiven. Pay me what you owe. What shall we do, Jesus? This woman was caught in the very act. What shall we do, uh, Jesus? This person has, has done this. Everyone's has to pay God to get right with God. This per, this man's born blind. So, who is it that owes God? The righteousness back. Was it him or was it his parents? But someone needs to pay. Someone needs to do something to make this right. And we, Satan is very interested in these transactions. No. The Father loves you because of what his love is like. Not because of what you're like. And he loved you when you were the most unlovable in his eyes. We're not very good at that. He is. He can actually love the unlovable. The offender. The the one who offended him. The one who took him for granted. The one who was unthankful. The one who spoke hard words against him. The one who had all these responsibilities and then the person failed in those responsibilities like Peter did. I wouldn't deny you. I'll stand by you. I'll take out the sword. I'll be with you to the end, Lord. 
but he failed. He thought he could do that, but he failed. Did he have to pay Christ back? Oh, Christ says, Simon, lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? He draws it out of him. But Christ is sitting there. The decision has already been made. Christ's heart is towards him. He's saying that for Peter's own good. Christ doesn't look at him and say, this is what you owe me for what you did. No, the Father loved you when you were unlovable. And he delights in communion with you. Though you are either entirely unlovable or a lot of you is unlovable at any given point. There will always be something. We're unclean in some of these ways. Don't fall into that trap, friend, that because you're more reformed than you used to be or because the form of worship is proper and correct and so on, don't fall into the trap that uh, that that's um, that that makes you clean enough. Um, that that's the basis of the communion. That is a channel of the communion, and we must honor God in these things, and they do matter to Him. And as your elder prayed, when we mess with these commandments, when we mess with the second commandment, it will bring God's judgment. It will. But the Father's love for a believer is not because you're more reformed than you used to be, or you know more of the Bible, and so on. His love is a lot older than that, before you ever ever knew what reformed was. His love is older than that. You, you know what I'm going to say. From all eternity he loved you. He saw the sins of your body and your mind. He saw the sin between you and your wife. He, he saw the sin of you towards your child. He saw the sin of you at work. He saw you cower like Peter and before the, uh, the, the, ser- the servant girl and say, oh, I, I don't know him. It's, I'm not sharing the gospel right now. He, he's, he's seen the way thoughts just flit up from your heart that connect to any of the Ten Commandments. He knows what we are, but the Father loves. He doesn't love and say, oh, it's okay that you're like that, as you wouldn't to your children. He doesn't say it's okay. But he, he loves you. Your, your communion with the Father is based on your identity with him, not always your condition. It's identity. Who does he love? His own children. He, he chose to adopt these people. That's his choice. He chose, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, to elect in love and to adopt enemies, foreigners, and make them accepted in the beloved, in his son. He already had a son. He already had a house. He already had a glorious, holy temple of glory. It's his choice to adopt. And he makes that adoption, and then he takes the sinner, me and you, and he's working on us. And his love for me and you is based on that relationship. When you sin, he's still your father. When you sin... He still loves you if you are truly born again. This is not antinomianism. He chastens the ones he loves and it will sting. It will hurt. But his love for you and his communion with you is based on his relationship to you. Now, when you're weak and you're running at 50% or you've fallen back, you don't feel strength in your soul. Your prayers aren't flowing. 
You're not serving him the way that you wish you were. You're not full of hope and power. You're discouraged about the condition of the church in this land. And you're looking at your church here and saying, what do we do? And we go out with the gospel. Your prayers to him must be based on this. Not based on your faithfulness. Or because we're more conservative and so on. Your prayer must be based on that. Satan will be in there. How many times I have bowed down to pray and there Satan is. It's literally the oldest trick in the book. It's the, the oldest of his temptations. That, that God's love is not committed. It's not generous. That he, he drives Adam to run from God instead of dealing with, with the problem and, and, and believing in the goodness of God. Believing that God is so good that God knows what mercy is and that he delights in mercy. Forgive me for this, Lord, and my coldness and lukewarmness. Satan says, he's not forgiven you. That prayer isn't long enough. You're not hearing the voice of God right now, benedicting you, uh, saying all is well. God has a controversy with you and his love isn't free towards you. Don't believe in, in his love that way. You can't go to him. The, the, the um, prodigal son comes back and Satan will do this in your prayer life. I am not worthy even, just put me with your hired servants. Just anything's better than the mess I've made. Just, I'll, I'll approach my father in stages. And Jesus speaks of his father in a way that we would dare not speak were it not Jesus said it, that the father sees the sinner afar off and runs to him and is extremely generous towards him. Well, you've done this and you're not worthy to be my son anymore. No, my son was dead. But you now he's alive. What does the man who wants to pay, the man who's following God and who thinks he deserves communion with God, and who stayed at the house and he didn't do something as foolish as become lukewarm or leave or fall into sin, and he says, this son of yours, look what he did. No. The father delights in mercy by choice. You can pray to the father. On the cross, Jesus was not wrenching the love of God out of the father's hand. It's not that Jesus is there out of immense love to us and that the, the Father um, has a distaste for us in a sense that it's only because of what Jesus is doing that the Father will tolerate us in any sense. Jesus is there because the Father saw the sin of his children and rather than pouring the wrath out on me and you, poured it out on the one who would 
and could and did bear it on the greatest son in the family. He poured it out on him. Why? To show you mercy. You can go to the Father and Jesus' blood cleanses from all sin. It's a new and living way into the Father's presence. And the Father delights in communion with you as a bridegroom delights over his bride on the wedding day. Turn to your Father. Trust in your Father. Believe in the love and the mercy of your Father. A mercy that lasts forever. A mercy that is higher than the heavens. Believe in it. We also have communion with the Son. In verse 23, me and my Father will come and make our home with him. We. There's that we he speaks of often. Remember he said to Nicodemus, I think it was Nicodemus, we speak of what we know. You speak of what you don't know. In John 17, in his great divine prayer, it's like the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Even though three persons, he's one. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus says in his prayer. In that great prayer of the oneness of God, he says there's only one God, he says, one true God. Throughout the prayer, he's saying we and they, we and they, as you are in me, Father, and as I am in you, and as we are in them, we, we will come and make mansion in your soul. So the Son of God is in your soul too. By the Holy Spirit. He is there. His love is no different than the Father. And He is the one who in that great covenant received that commission. In covenant from the Father. And He is the one who came to live for you and die for you and ascend for you and now He reigns for you. And Jesus says, I am going, but I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. But lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Jesus is here. He's with his Father, and he's here. Jesus longs for that communion, the way the Father does. And he looks upon you as his bride. Any of you married, you remember, husbands, looking at your bride... In those early days, those simple days of desire and youth and beauty, on that on that, a glorious day like that, and the love, the unconditional delight in which you took in your bride, the Bible says Jesus takes that delight just as much as his father. He's wise. I know your pastor has preached on the Song of Solomon, and you know that book. He is wise. He will remove himself. He will hide himself beyond the lattice. He will be unfindable in the streets of the city, but that's so that you will learn to find him. And when the watchmen find you, and they beat you and strike you, and so on, you will find your beloved. And you will come up out of the wilderness leaning on your beloved. Jesus is the husband of the believer. 
He is the betrothed. He is the one that places on you his signet ring and his his wedding gown. He is the one who cherishes his people. And like the Father, Jesus knows what's wrong with us. He warns churches that he'll remove the lampstand. That if they do not repent, certain things will come upon them. He brings judgment on the obstinate. Jesus is not weak, but neither is his love weak. There's a difference between willful, rebellious sin and, and the failures and, and the shortcomings and the infirmities of a believer who loves Christ. Of course you fall. We'll fall today. There are times we fall. That was Paul's only hope. In my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. O wretched man that I am. There are days that you must say, O wretched man that I am. You don't say it instead of everything else. You can say, O wretched man that I am. And pray through that and five minutes later you can be into adopted man that I am. Both are true. Our sin is wretched. But that's why we have a saviour. That's why he's cleansing us. Jesus doesn't just see what you were and the one thing that you are right now. He has something to say about it and something to do about it. Jesus is your sanctifier and he sees the end result as well. He's loving you with that in mind. It's not that he's, it's not that Boaz saw Ruth or it's not that, it's not that the Israelites saw the foreigner in all her idolatry and brought her in and then it all happens at once. He's, He's making something of her. But the marriage happens and the certificate is there and the love is there. And it will not move. Jesus is no unfaithful husband. He's brought us in. He loves us. And he will remain our husband. He dwells with us. In this great discourse in these chapters, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart this world and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And that I'm not theorizing here or just wanting to apply something to you. This, this is unbelievable, if you know what I mean by that. This is Peter and James and John and Nathaniel. These are men with great faults fighting each other and They will fail so much as I do and you do. But he loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. And I've often missed, I always focus on he loved them to the end. No, he loved his own. Not not loved the faithful. Not not loved those who who only prove themselves and never put a foot wrong. And he loved them to the end. He loved his own. See, that's the basis of the communion. You must go into prayer and say, what have I done? But you must quickly move to, I am his own. You, you actually belong to him. You're his wife. My beloved is mine. And I am his. And even when there's a breach there, Jesus loves his own. And he loves them to the end. And he will make uh, something of you at the end that is beautiful and glorious. But 
he delights in that communion now. Oh, Satan is interested in that. You want communion with Christ, you're a believer? Go to him. He delights in your communion. I know you're not impressive. None of us are. But he delights in it. He desires that. And Satan will do anything to drive you away from it and for you to think he could never enjoy your communion with him. I am tan, she says in the song. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. I am dark. And he says to her, you are lovely, my dove, my perfect one. Let me hear your voice. Let me see your face. For your voice and face to me are lovely. O dove in the cleft of the rock, hiding and cowering from the storm, come out. Let me see you. He He wants to walk with you. He wants to place his arm around you and for you to come up out of this barren, cursed wilderness, leaning on your beloved. He knows your sin, but he is willing to be with you and deal with that sin. Can I, can I say anything greater to you than that? That Jesus desires to walk with the believer and to love them? Can I say anything better to you than that? My time is gone, so let me close with this, that the Spirit is with you himself and how impersonalized he becomes in our theology, that he's there to accommodate a two-person communion, Father and Son, but he's there. He's there in our passage of verses 16 and 17. That word that the King James translates comforter is the word paraclete, para like the word parallel, to, to be with or alongside, para, and then cleat or kaleo, to call. One called to be beside you. Jesus says he's in you, but he's there. This is the word John uses later in his life, that Jesus, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus the paraclete. That's that word advocate in our translations. We have an advocate with the Father in the court of heaven. But Jesus tells us here we have an advocate here in the, in the court of our own heart, in that place. We have one divine person here in us as a paraclete, an advocate. And we have another divine person in Christ Jesus in his humanity as advocate before the Father. How the Father loves us. He gives us two advocates and says that he's, a, he's the judge. So the judge is our father in the courtroom and he's given us the two best advocates, divine eternal advocates. One, Jesus advocates legally that sin is atoned for and he intercedes as our priest. You know that. But the spirit who too often remains nameless and indistinct, he is our Advocate, our paraclete, he's called alongside us to be with us and represent us and to intercede with groanings that cannot be uttered. I think that I, I uh, when I was growing up, the, the word comforter 
I didn't like the word comforter in that passage because I thought it only gave one element of what the Spirit does. He's only there to comfort. But then when you grow up and then you start thinking about things like Latin, um, comfort. One who is calm with, with and fort to strengthen. So it's not just there, their comfort. It's fortification, strengthener, speaker, mover, illuminator, energizer. We have one who fortifies. He is with us. The paraclete, the comforter, and he is also a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We think of Jesus that way. We think of our Father. The Spirit is our close friend. Now, there's all there's a lot more to say about the Holy Spirit. You know how he's disrespected. And you know that when he is disrespected, the earth opens up and swallows up those who blaspheme him. And he burns in holiness. And priests and kings fall in his presence. And Ananias and Sapphira fall in the church and their bodies must be carried out. There you go. I've given the warning. But this great one, the Holy One of God, is your companion. He is to help you read the Bible, to help you pray to manifest Christ to you and to take of the things which are Christ and reveal them unto you. He is the Spirit of the Father. He is the promise of the Father. He is the one who Paul says to the Galatians that the Father has sent forth His Spirit into our hearts to cry, Abba, Father. He is the Father's Spirit and He is the Spirit of Christ. But let us know Him. Richard Sibbs has that great... A sermon and, and book on entertaining the Holy Spirit. Get to know the Holy Spirit. Be sensitive to Him. Honor Him. Honor His Word. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. He wrote it. When God breathed this Word, it was the Spirit who inscribed it and moved holy men of God. He loves this Word. And he wants you to love this word. Whoever loves my word and keeps my word, me and my father shall dwell with him. You won't be perfect, but you can dwell with God. He dwells with you. Friend, there is a lot to say about communion with God. I hope you leave here today. And when the father says, Go into your room in secret. Shut the door and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I hope you know that when you go in there, it's not an empty room. There isn't anything you need to build in there. You are not starting with a blank sheet of paper from square one because you've left off prayer and you need to build a great rapport with God again. You go into that place God is greater than us and he can receive a repenting sinner into his presence. He can take someone who was cold and lukewarm and he can receive you into his presence. Go into that place. That's the only 
way the church can minister and grow today. In that place, the Father loves the believer. The Son loves the believer. The Spirit loves the believer. And he shall be in you. May God grant that these things would be so. Uh, Let's rise for prayer. Let us pray. Our great God in heaven, we pray that you would take your word and that we would know these things for ourselves. Jesus said to them in that room, I will not pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believe that I came forth from God. O Lord, we pray that we would know this communion. We know the enemy would question your love and your grace and the the freedom of your gospel that he would have us to turn to a legalistic spirit. He would have us turn to a works-based relationship with thee, in which all all of our blessedness um, from you hinges on the earning of our own works, Help us rather to see the relationship that your people were bought by you, that you willed and purposed from all eternity to save your elect, that Christ delights in heart, affection, and communion of his people. And that the Holy Spirit is a companion of the believer. Jesus said in that room, I have not called you servants. I have called you friends. A servant doesn't know what the master is doing. We pray we would not be like that. We pray that if we need to be closer to you if we need to see you manifested in our spiritual lives and communion with you, if we need a closer walk with you, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bring that to pass. But we pray it would never be the case that we don't know what you are doing, that we are not close to you, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And you will give the knowledge of your covenant to them. O Lord, we ask that you would bless each one of us who is in Christ with that close walk with Jesus. Any among us who have not yet seen his beauty and glory or have not yet known him, we ask that even the the beautiful words of Christ that we have seen this morning 
would be used by thee to melt their hearts and to break open the heart of stone and to give a living heart, a heart given by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would show them the desirability of Christ, that he is to be sought and loved and served. Show them his glory. Show them their dire need. What it is to be without him, without hope in this world, and to have our sin not yet dealt with. We praise you for the cross and all that it accomplished. That the blood was shed and your son was given out of your love and that he did it all out of love. So Lord, let us then walk in the love of God and keep ourselves in the love of God. For we ask it all in our great Savior's name. Amen.